Father, you are a gracious and good God to us. You have lavished upon us so many blessings. We're privileged people. And the greatest gift that you've given us is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins by faith. I pray that we may be people who now, in response to all that you have done for us, that we may be attentive and eager listeners to something that is very important in your heart, as revealed in your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to use 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 as kind of our base of operation. But we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. But keep your finger there or your Bible ribbon in that particular, those two chapters. Because we're going to keep coming back to that text. And I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they, have, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work also, or as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Last week, as you know, we began a two-part series titled Kingdom-Minded Stewardship. We began that series last week just addressing um, what does it mean to be a kingdom-minded steward of the possessions and the money that God has given us. And we saw last week, if you remember, six principles of giving that shape the kingdom-minded Christian. We saw that giving is worship. We saw that giving is required. We saw that giving is wise. It is a wise investment of our resources Giving is a stewardship. Ultimately, everything that we have, all of our money and possessions are the Lord's. Giving is rewarded. Perhaps not in this life, though oftentimes God does so even in this life. But it has eternal rewards. And the people that many times our resources go toward and the lives that are impacted for the sake of the gospel. And giving, last but not least, is Christ-like. It's Christ-like to give. When you think about our Lord Jesus Christ and His grace, according to verse 9, that though He was rich, He had infinite riches in heaven, He clothed Himself, wrapped Himself in humanity, added humanity to His deity. He came and He became poor here on this earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins. If you turn from your sins and put your faith in Him, and then you and I become rich because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. 
and His grace. Giving is Christ-like. We are following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ who was a, a fundamentally a giver, right? Even to the point of giving His own life, laying down His life for we who believe in Him by faith. These six principles shape our thinking. And now having addressed our thinking, this morning I want us to focus on the, the practice of the kingdom-minded Christian in this area of biblical stewardship. Having armed our thinking, so to speak, we have to talk about what this looks like, how this fleshes itself out in our lives. So if you're already here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the context is very important as we look at this particular text of Scripture. And this is more of a topical message. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be um, parachuting, so to speak, and extracting certain practices from the Macedonians here, the example of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, if you will. Now, the context is very important. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians 8 to contribute to a special offering for the Jerusalem church, a very important church, but a very poor and needy church. And in order to motivate them, Paul shares with them the example of the Macedonian churches whom he alludes to in verse 1. The Jerusalem church was especially needy and poor. If you remember, the church of Jerusalem had been founded in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Many pilgrims had come into Jerusalem in Acts 2 to celebrate the annual Jewish feasts. And at that time, if you remember, Peter preaches an amazing gospel message and people are saved and the Jerusalem church is born. But along with the formation of the Jerusalem church was the reality that many of these new converts there were pilgrims that had come in from outside of Jerusalem. They had left their homes in other places outside of Jerusalem. These people get, uh, get saved, and now they are a part of the Jerusalem church. Many of them stayed back, abandoning many of their possessions, choosing the, their new life, so to speak, um, in Jerusalem to be a part of that church. And so there was great need because of these people. And recognizing that great need of the Jerusalem church then, Paul embarks on a, on a collection of gifts, of offerings from the many different churches and circles in order to contribute to, to, these, to the Jerusalem church. And the ones that jump on board, as always, are the Macedonian churches wanting to give to Paul for the needs of their brethren in Jerusalem. And it is those Macedonian churches in chapter 8 that Paul commends in order to encourage the Corinthians to follow the same example of the Macedonian churches with regards to giving to the Lord's work. These Macedonian believers were kingdom-minded Christians. Mark it. And so there's much for us to learn from them. There's much to glean from these people. And like I said, what I simply want to do is, is draw out, ex extract five practices of the kingdom-minded Christian in the area of giving from chapters 8 and 9. Okay, And as we walk through these, these five practices of the kingdom-minded Christian, I want you to ask yourself, do these practices describe my giving? Is my family functioning this way? And if not, what changes do you need to make as an individual? What changes do you need to make as a family 
to ensure greater faithfulness in the area of biblical stewardship or of giving to the Lord's work. So let's look at these five practices of the kingdom-minded Christian, okay? First of all, the kingdom-minded Christian practices gracious giving. Practices gracious giving. These Macedonian Christians were were a model, an example of, of generosity. And so the question then becomes for us, what what motivated the generosity of these Macedonian believers? What is it that motivates generally selfish people who often are preoccupied with their own wants and their own needs to be generous to the Lord's work? What is it that motivates that in believers? We get the answer in verse 1, but all sprinkled throughout this whole text as we're going to see. Look at verse 1. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you, here it is, the grace of God, the grace which comes from God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And he's going to expand upon their generosity, the Macedonians' generosity. But what motivates the Macedonian believers to practice generosity and give above and beyond even their ability? According to verse 3, he says, the grace of God. These believers had been transformed by the grace of God. The grace of God had been poured out upon them and they were now Christians and they were to be gracious toward other people. And I want you to see this. Paul sprinkles the, the, the uh, word grace throughout this text as if to say, God has poured his grace upon you. You are the recipients of the grace of God. And in turn, you are to be practicing graciousness in the area of giving and your possessions to others. Look at what he says in verse 4. That these Macedonians were begging us with much urging for the favor, that's the word grace, for the grace of participation in the support of the saints. So the, the grace of God has been poured out, deposited upon these Macedonian believers, and now they have become instruments of grace. They want to extend favor and be gracious in their giving and participate in the support of the saints in Jerusalem, according to verse 4. Notice verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you. Now he's speaking to the Corinthians. In you this gracious work also. So, Corinthians, look at the example of the Macedonians. They're being motivated by the grace of God. And you, verse 6, are to be practicing in, in this particular work as well. This gracious work, he calls it. By which he means generosity, their offering that he's asking for them to prayerfully consider. They should follow the example of graciousness in the Macedonians. Look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work. Also, he's talking about the gift The monetary gift for the Jerusalem church. Notice he doesn't call it at the end of verse 7. Simply um, this this, this offering or just this work. He calls it a gracious work, does he not? A gracious work. Because they are now the visible, tangible expression by means of their possessions and their money and their offering of God's grace. They are to be gracious toward others as well. What makes that possible for us as believers to practice that kind of graciousness is given to us in verse 9, isn't it? For you know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, their gracious giving is to be patterned after the ultimate giver of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be patterned after. All throughout this text, Paul wants these Corinthians to recognize the motivation in the human heart of generosity. And that is a greater understanding of the deposit of the grace of God in our lives. We who have experienced the favor of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, unmerited, right? Unearned. It is all by grace. It is all by faith. And then in turn, now understanding that grace, we are to be gracious toward one another, and especially, beloved, in this instance, with our our material possessions and our money, investing those resources into the kingdom of God. Now listen, it's easy to be gracious toward people that you don't know, or that you're familiar with, rather. But these Macedonian Christians market were generous people, even toward people that they did not know, the Jerusalem church. They did not know these people. They were strangers to them. They were not familiar with these believers. And yet, that didn't matter to them. They still were chomping at the bits, if you will, to help and to practice graciousness toward these believers. This gracious giving was practiced in the early church. And I want you to see this. Keep your your finger there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want you to go back with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. To see the expression of graciousness in the early church. Luke gives these beautiful progress reports in Acts. And he wants us to know how the early church is doing. And he says in Acts 2.41... So then, those who had received his word, Peter's preaching that is, were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. I submit to you there there were many needs, right? Right after that many people are added to the church. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. In other words, it was this singleness of purpose, this interconnectedness that they experienced and that they shared in the fellowship of faith in Jesus Christ. And it found expression, even with regards to tangible things. Look at verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. These believers were a sharing community under Christ. Look at chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And listen to this. An abundant grace was upon them all. 
God's favor was saturating these people, if you will. And one of the, the expressions that that was taking place and, and motivations was what we see in verse 35 and the way that they even used their material possessions and their, and their tangible um, possessions for the help of one another. Look at verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This was a a church that met needs, beloved. That was gracious even in the sharing of possessions and of money and finances with one another. And it was not forced It was not coerced. It was voluntary. They wanted to do this. Why? Because they were so full of of amazement at the grace of God shown to them in Jesus Christ. That's the sense that you get when you read the book of Acts and the way that this church functioned. That is the, the fuel, the grace of God and His mercy and His kindness to these believers that caused them to want to be gracious toward one another. They were... People who practice gracious giving. This is what should happen in any church, beloved. God's grace shown toward you and I then is is made visible and, and is tangibly expressed toward others as needs are met. See, the more we understand that God has bestowed His blessing upon us, the more we can then in turn be a blessing to other people. That's where it begins, understanding His grace. Listen, People who have experienced a gracious God don't turn the blind eye, generally speaking, to the needs of the church. We may do that in our sinfulness. We may do that in a state of selfishness. But people who have been shown the grace of God take ownership of the needs in a church and look and prayerfully consider how each person or family may contribute to that particular need. That's what grace does in our lives. And then I want you to see that as we do that, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as we do that, as we practice graciousness toward one another, God richly supplies us with even more grace. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, actually, and verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all Grace abound to you so that you all, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Ten years ago, I visited a brother in El Salvador and this brother left the country, the U.S., um, all the comforts and all of that, a promising career to go to El Salvador and, do, and, and focus on church planting and the spread of the gospel there. And one of the means by which he established relationships and the needs that he identified there in El Salvador was the need in these, these, villages, where, or, or, um, these villages where there was no clean water to um, establish a well or dig a well. So he was there for a number of, of years doing this. Um, uh, soliciting funds from American Christians and others, trying to get funding for this particular thing. And it was a beautiful thing to watch. By the time that I got there, he had already been, this well had been in operation for about five years. 
And we got to see for a couple of days how people would walk long distances from the villages to this well to draw with their big buckets to draw water out of that well. That was the only well that had clean water for them. Today, here in our country, we take that for granted, but not in these places. So this was, this was the fountain of clean water for them, in other words. And so they would take that water back to their villages and through that they were able to cook and take showers and obviously drink from that clean water in their villages. Beloved, the picture here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 with regards to the grace of God is very similar. We, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says to the Macedonians, You Macedonians are recipients of the grace of God. And you are to then, uh, Corinthians, imitate the, the Macedonians, being motivated by the grace of God. That grace has been deposited in you, a wellspring of grace, so to speak. You are then to become gracious toward others in your giving towards others and blessing towards others. And then chapter 9, verse 8 says, and when you do that, you are an instrument of graciousness to other believers. God will then abundantly supply you with even more grace. That's what he will do. So that you will be you will be ready for every good work that he has established for you or set forth for you to accomplish. You see the beauty of that? That is gracious giving. We're recipients of the grace of God. We then become instruments of graciousness to others in our giving. And then we all we have the comfort of reward that if we return to our God, he will pour lavishly, abundantly, even more grace upon us. So that then it comes full circle again and we in turn bless others once again in our graciousness. Isn't that beautiful? The picture here in 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. Practice gracious giving. Gracious giving. Secondly, if we're motivated by God's grace... We will secondly practice sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Because we understand God's sacrifice for us in Jesus Christ, do we not? Now listen, these Macedonian churches, believers, were sacrificial people. But they were not sacrificial people who gave a lot because they were prosperous people or they were in a good financial situation themselves. It was the contrary, opposite of that. And we see this here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen, the Macedonian churches were located in, the, in a Roman province in northern Greece that was very poor. Some of the cities that were located in that particular Roman province of northern Greece were Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. These were all cities located in that area. And according to New Testament history, that region where the Macedonians were was constantly being ravaged by wars. It was the battleground for many wars. And that brought certain suffering to those poor people who lived there. In addition, the Macedonian region was was highly uh, taken advantage by many people and many different movements and highly taxed by the Roman government. And so my point is, these people are sacrificial even though they are not in a very good financial condition. They are not prosperous. They are poor. They're poverty stricken in some ways, if you will. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 2. He says that they were gracious and generous despite their experiencing a great ordeal of affliction, he says. A great ordeal of affliction. The word there for affliction is this Greek word, thlipsis. And it means oppression. That these people experienced the, the crushing pressure of poverty, if you will. They were dirt poor, beloved. That's what it means. 
They were not prosperous people. He also says, look at verse 2, that they gave despite their deep poverty. Their extreme poverty is the idea. They were in severe poverty in many cases themselves. They were beggarly poor people, many of them, who often themselves were lacking of their own basic needs. And yet in the midst of their own difficult circumstances, these people gave sacrificially. Look at verse 2. He says that they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That word overflowed there was used of a, of a river overflowing its banks or of a well overflowing with water. These people were overflowing, abounding in generosity, if you will. And when he says that they were, that says wealth, he's talking about being rich in generosity, which is what liberality means. They were richly generous people. They were an exceedingly generous people. Generosity is the opposite of a double-minded or duplicitous attitude that gives reluctantly, beloved. That is not genuine generosity. When you give, not from a genuine heart of worship. Generosity is giving with singleness of intent. From the heart. Singleness of purpose. That's how our giving should be. Our giving should match our heart's desire to give if we are truly generous. Generosity comes from a sincere heart. We give because we we want to give to the Lord's work. Not because we are being forced to or being given a guilt trip. The last thing I want to do this morning, beloved, is give you some guilt trip, okay? I simply want to open up the Word of God and look at what God's Word has to say about biblical stewardship. Our giving must be done from the heart if we're truly generous. Not because we're coerced, because we feel guilty, or anything like that. See, these believers were sacrificial. They didn't make excuses. They didn't make excuses. Oh, woe is us. Woe is us. We're so poor. We don't have very much. Paul, what's up with you telling us about this Jerusalem church that is very poor and needy? Have you not looked at us, Macedonian believers, for crying out loud? We have needs of our own too. Why should we be focused upon contributing to the needs of poor people when we're poor ourselves? They didn't do that. We do that, don't we? We make excuses. I don't have very much. Um, If I earned more... Maybe I would give. Or if I didn't have the needs that I have, maybe if I could take care of my own, then perhaps I would be able to give regularly. See, these Macedonians didn't make those kinds of excuses, beloved. We often think that it is only those who are well-to-do that should give. Or those who have an abundance from our perspective that should be the givers in the church. The Macedonians were down in the dumps, financially speaking, if you will. Down in the dumps. But they gave sacrificially. Look at verse 3. They gave and they gave beyond their ability, he says in verse 3. Not just the bare minimum, but above and beyond their ability. And they were unforced or coerced. Look at verse 3. They gave of their own accord, voluntarily, willingly, because they wanted to give to the Lord's work. They were sacrificial givers. Many of you have traveled to foreign countries, I know. I'm always amazed, I'm sure you are, at the, at the faith of, of our brethren in foreign countries. Who, Beloved, people, these people don't have very much. 
They just frankly don't. Um, to use an example, Honduras. Whenever I go to Honduras, I've been there some nine times now. You know what? People are so, so giving. I visited homes and gone in and seen their living situations. And I'll tell you what, I've never once in my nine or ten times that I've visited Honduras have ever been made to feel like I wasn't wanted there. Or like they were going to give me their second best. They come out with the best kind of food, the best that they have. They want you to have the best. They want to serve you. And they don't do it reluctantly as if you're a burden. They do it with joy. They're sacrificial with with joy. They commonly refer to one another as siervos, servants. That's how they view themselves. I can't count the number of times that, you know, I always feel guilty about people serving me like that. Whatever country it may be. And when I start uh, talking to them about, brother, you, you should not be doing that anymore. I say, brother, it's the least that I can do. It's the least that I can do. I'm here to serve you. I'm your siervo. I'm your servant. I've heard that in Southeast Asia as well. These people have this, this sacrificial mindset that they are a living sacrifice. They're there to serve Christ and serve his people, beloved. And they will even their possessions and their resources, they will not hoard those, but give them to you. What about us? Do we recognize like these people that are stuck is, is rooted in another world? That we have a kingdom that is to come, that we will be a part of if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So we should be doing everything to invest our resources into people for the progress of the gospel. Do we see it that way? See, servants sacrifice. If we have that mindset. Servants are willing to say no to themselves and to, and to practice self-control in order to say yes to gracious, generous giving, beloved. That's the heart of a servant, a sacrificial servant. Now, our gracious, sacrificial giving must be done with the right heart attitude, right? So thirdly, we must practice joyful giving. Practice joyful giving. Look at verse 2. Of 2 Corinthians 8. He says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Notice, he says, their abundance of joy. These believers were not reluctant. These believers were not complaining. These believers were not giving on the outside and grumbling within as they gave. These believers were not sad or depressed at the fact that, oh, i got to give some of my money that I've worked very hard for to these people. Or angry at the fact that here it is again, another need. Or having a pity party about their own needs. No. He says in verse 2, their abundance of joy. That word abundance means surplus. Surplus of joy. It was an a, a overflowing joy. It was a, a pleasure and a joy for them to give. And they were abounding in this joy. See, because they were invested in greater things, beloved. That's where it comes from. Biblical joy doesn't, is it doesn't come from happenstance, if you will. The happenings of your life. Biblical joy is not rooted in passing circumstances. In passing situations of life, it's rooted in the kingdom of Christ and who you are in that kingdom, that you're a citizen of that kingdom. That's what they 
practiced giving with joy? Look at chapter 9 and verse 7. This is what pleases God, doesn't it? God doesn't want a reluctant giver. Verse 6 says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Here it is. For God loves a what giver? Cheerful giver. A glad or joyful giver. Not someone who is motivated by mere obligation. Though certainly obligation has its place at times. And then the joy comes later when we fulfill our responsibilities. But as a pattern, our giving should not be by, for mere obligation or a guilt trip or inner resentment, beloved. It should be from joy or with joy. Because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were joyful through their circumstances, these people. Circumstances that were not very favorable. Their joy wasn't rooted in their circumstances. They were poor. They were persecuted. They were oppressed. They were exploited people. They had needs of their own. But instead of of feeling sorry for themselves and their circumstances and their financial needs that they had personally, they overflowed in their generosity and they were abounding with joy in their giving, you see. What a model. What an example. These were human beings empowered by the Spirit of God, just like you and I are, beloved. They weren't angels, right? They were humans empowered, believers empowered by the Spirit of God to have this kind of an attitude and to give generously and graciously this way with joy. Listen, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, beloved. Here we go again. Another message on giving. You know, talking about money. Oh my goodness. All right, fine. Here's the offering. You know what? If that's your attitude, don't give. Don't give. But let me tell you this. If this is you, not only don't give, but realize that you have a greater problem. That kind of an attitude exposes your sinful, wretched heart and your selfishness and your self-entitlement. The way that you use your money and the attitude with which you use your money is a barometer of your heart condition. So you have greater problems than you didn't give Calvary Bible Church such and such in your, on the offering plate. You have heart problems, beloved brother or sister. Don't give that with that kind of an attitude. There's nothing worse than someone giving a gift reluctantly, right? Even as human beings, how many of you like it when, when your spouse uh, serves you or meets a need and they do so in an in a angry fashion? It's like, take it then, forget you then. Here's a gift. Or I'm going to meet your need, but boy, are you such a burden. My goodness, but here, take it then. How many of you like that? I don't like that kind of a gift. <laughs> take the gift back for crying out loud, right? I don't need that. See, we do that oftentimes, or even in the... In the in relationships, nobody wants that kind of a gift, beloved. All right, I'll meet your need, but what a drag, right? What a drag. I guess I'll help you if I must. No one likes that. Neither does God, beloved. You want people to help or serve you with joy, and so does our God. He wants us to do and give to Him and to His work with joy, with an attitude of joy. Because we want to. Because we're invested into eternity. 
Attitude in giving is very important to God, beloved. Very important. I came across a humorous little account in the life of John Wesley's preaching ministry that kind of uh, illustrates this point about how attitude in giving is important. A farmer who was not much concerned with spiritual matters, in other words, he was an unbelieving farmer, a farmer who was not much concerned with spiritual matters once went to hear John Wesley preach. Wesley was preaching about money, and he soon had the farmer's attention because his first point was, get all you can. The farmer nudged his neighbor and said, this is unusual preaching. I've never heard the likes of this before. This is good stuff. Wesley talked about hard work and purposeful living so that you may acquire wealth. His second main point was, save all you can. The farmer became even more excited. Did you ever hear anything like this? He exclaimed. Wesley denounced waste and extravagance. The farmer was quite happy thinking, I do all of these things. But then Wesley advanced to his third point, which was give all you can. Oh dear, oh dear, moaned the farmer. He has gone and spoiled his sermon. (laughs) See, this man was joyful. When it came to his first two points, right? Accumulate wealth, get all you can, save all you can. He was hoarding it probably, but not joyful when it came to sharing what he had. Attitude is important. God loves a cheerful giver who takes pleasure and joy in bringing glory to his name by giving, beloved. I want to ask you this morning, do you rejoice when you give? Is it a joy? Or is it drudgery, burdensome, a necessary evil that you must obey, right? Or are you suspicious? What are they going to do with the money now? Or are you joyful about giving to the Lord's work? So we must practice gracious, sacrificial, joyful giving. Fourthly, practice planned giving. Practice planned giving. Listen, this was not the first time these Macedonians had given. We saw the text last week, Philippians chapter 4, where Paul um, alludes to the Macedonians and says, you guys are, are constantly people who are generous. You've given to me more than one time. On more than one occasion, you've contributed to the needs that I have for the progress of the gospel. These people, beloved, the Macedonians, planned to contribute Because according to Philippians, which was one of the churches in Macedonia, they had a heart for the gospel. The thing that was most important to them was the progress of the gospel, these people. And so they they planned to give and to contribute to the Lord's work. If you want to put it this way, these Macedonians were anticipatory givers. They anticipated anticipated the the opportunity and and the gift that it was to contribute of their resources for the progress of the gospel. And that's a sense that we get here in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Listen, he says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, he's speaking of the Macedonians, they gave of their own accord, in other words, voluntarily, begging us with much urging for the favor or the grace, the gift of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. These people were chomping at the bits to give. They anticipated giving. They planned ahead to give, I submit to you. Begging to give. 
There's a sense in here which maybe Paul had told them, hey, Macedonians, you guys are really in a poor condition. You're needy yourselves. It's okay this time. And what did they do? They begged, urged for the gift of participation and the support of the saints, according to verse 4. It seems that before the need was even made known, these believers were ready to forgive. Why? Because their hearts, beloved, according to verse 5, were so consecrated to God and devoted to the cause of the gospel that they relished in the opportunity to give, you see. They relished in that opportunity. We must be purposeful and planners, anticipatory givers, beloved. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 says this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice, just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, the gracious giver plans ahead. He does not give grudgingly or under compulsion. By grudgingly, he means reluctantly. Unwilling, forced, coerced, half-hearted, resentfully, fine, I'll give. But inwardly, you are stomping your feet because you had to let go of that money. By compulsion, he means to, to act uh, when, when somebody acts against one's inward wishes. In other words, from obligation. He says, don't give under compulsion. Don't give under obligation because you're pressured or coerced or you give on the spur of the moment because somebody's pushing you on it. No. Instead, we are to give as he has purposed in his heart. The idea there by purposed is predetermined in a deliberate manner, deliberating beforehand in your giving. In other words, planned giving it means that we, we purposefully and with intentionality, listen, plan ahead as to how we will give regularly, consistently, and in a calculated fashion to the Lord's work. Strategizing prayerfully, considering, evaluating personally and as families so that what we give is truly what we have purposed in our own hearts to give consistently and regularly. We ought to have a sense of readiness, beloved. Chapter 9, verse 2 says that. For I know your readiness, he says, concerning the, speaking of the Corinthians. The Corinthians were prepared, not taken off guard. They were eager and anticipating the blessing and opportunity to give, to practice generosity. We do this in life, don't we? We plan for things. We plan ahead if we're using our resources rightly. We plan ahead. Such things as retirement. I want to retire well and have a comfortable latter years of my life. We plan for vacations as families. We want to go and take a nice vacation to relax and spend time together. We plan to, for, for the kids to go to college and to have funding available for them to be able to help our kids. We plan ahead, don't we? We're deliberate about those kinds of things. About buying nice things, a nice car that is needed about buying furniture because furniture gets ripped up and with wear and tear and all of that. We plan ahead for those kinds of things. Beloved, what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? Now you can use those things for the kingdom. But what about the church? 
What about the advance of the gospel? What about meeting of people's needs? What about those things? We're terrible at that, aren't we? But we plan ahead for other things. So this plan giving should be true of us. Rather than waiting on Sunday mornings when the, when the offering plate is coming around, it's being passed around, and when, or a need is made known in the church, what are we to do? We are to budget ahead of time, right? Lay aside our first fruits, the best of our wages or earnings, if you will, before spending on other things. Listen, in any of our financial budgets, the first line item that every Christian should have should be a number. A dollar amount. A dollar amount that is fixed, that is regular, that is consistent, so that you may give to the Lord's work first and foremost from your first fruits. That's what we should see. You know, in some ways, if you look at my, pay, if, um, in my checkbook, or I look at your checkbook, we should be able to see that. We should be able to see that on there, the first thing that, you, that I do, the first thing that you do, is give to the Lord first and foremost. We should be able to see that. But see, for many of us, we don't plan this way. We give sporadically. We give under compulsion. Or when there's a, a message or a, a series on giving that makes us feel really guilty, right? And so we react and we give a one-time gift. Or maybe for a few weeks or a few months we give. But before you know it, you don't give anymore. And you know what this shows? This shows that you were giving from compulsion and not from wrong motives. I am not saying that there won't be times when a, when a need is made known and so we respond to give in that particular moment with a special offering or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the pattern of our giving, beloved, every Sunday morning. What God wants is a change of heart, doesn't He? A change of heart that, that leads to a change of giving habits over a long period of time. That's what He wants. He wants our hearts to change so that we're moved to give regularly, consistently, and in a calculated fashion to the kingdom work. That's what he desires. This is a challenge, isn't it? Pick time challenge. Because if we're going to be practicing plan giving, you know what it requires? It requires that we practice contentment. Contentment. That we be thankful and happy with what we have. Beloved, the reason why many of us don't plan to give is that we don't know how to say no to many of the things that we want in life, not need in life. And we look at other people who have more than we have, and we want what they have, so therefore we live outside of our means to get those things because we're covetous and discontent. That's what the root is of all of that. Covetousness and discontentment. Leave your finger there in 2 Corinthians 8 and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want you to see this. Paul warns Timothy and the Ephesian church about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. He says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And how do you cultivate that contentment, Paul? Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. In other words, contentment is cultivated when we understand that we cannot take our toys with us, beloved. First and foremost, put them in perspective. Verse 8, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. 
Paul says, you want to cultivate contentment? Focus on needs, not wants, such as food and covering, water, we might say, shelter. Those are needs, not wants. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So what's the problem, Paul? Money is bad? Should we run the opposite direction with regards to wealth and the accumulation of of money? That's not what he's saying. Listen to verse 10. He says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What does he say? And he says in verse 11, But flee from these things, you man or woman of God. What is the problem? Not money in and of itself, beloved. Not possessions. Certainly it's, it's good to enjoy God's beautiful creation and to enjoy a nice vacation and to plan ahead for certain things. Those are good and profitable things. We're instructed even in Proverbs to be people who are deliberate in the accumulation of wealth, but not so we can hoard it. Not so that we can love our money, verse 10, because it will root to, lead to all kinds of destructiveness in our lives and selfishness, you see. He says the problem is the love of money, the fixation with possessions, the fixation with money, and the accumulation of it. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich, who, by the way, every single one of us in this room, in comparison to the rest of the world, are rich. So this is applicable to each one of us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. See, Paul says possessions, prosperity, money is not sin in and of itself. It's an opportunity to worship God by blessing others and practice gracious generosity, you see. That's what he says. We should not put our hope or our trust upon those things, beloved, that really are passing things, that are not eternal. Ultimately, life is not about those things. We should not entrust ourselves to those things, but to to do good and be generous and ready to share with that which we have. So listen, contentment and self-control must be cultivated if we are to practice planned giving that is regular, consistent, and calculated. Money or possessions must not be our little God, beloved. Otherwise, we will not practice regular giving. I assure you of that. Finally, fifth. Practice proportionate giving. Practice proportionate giving. Look at 2 Corinthians 8.3, and we'll finish here with this point. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, he says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. He says, according to their ability or their capacity. What, in other words, what they were able to do. The idea here is that they looked at what God had given them, And some had more than others. We do that as well. Each one had to search his own heart before the Lord and and predetermine and plan the amount that they were able to give depending on their level of income. That is proportionate giving. They gave in proportion to what they earned. 
proportionate giving takes into account that every person is different as far as the dollar amount that each of us can contribute, right? For example, a person who earns $100,000 a year will be in a position to give much more, numerically speaking, than a person who earns, let's say, $1,000 a year. Our level of giving arises out of our level of income, in other words. But regardless, whether it's the person who earns 100000 a million a year, or a dollar a year, each of us are called to regularly give nevertheless, right? Why don't we not do this? It's because we have misplaced priorities, beloved. Rather than giving in proportion to our income, our spending is in proportion to our income or above and beyond what we're actually earning. So we don't live within our means. And thus we're not able to give in proportion to our income. You see, how we use our money is a barometer of our priorities. How we use our money becomes a measuring stick of what is important to us. That is very, very true. For others of us, we simply adopted a, a sense of entitlement. We don't practice proportionate giving because, hey, I've worked hard for this money and to get these things, so I have a right to enjoy them. Rather than pass them on to others, rather than helping the church, rather than meeting a need, I've worked hard for 40, 50, 60 years for these things. See, we like to splurge and pamper ourselves, right? If we're honest... Beloved, we need to make a choice. We need to make a choice in this area of biblical stewardship. And the choice is this. Are we going to sow much in order to reap in abundance, eternally speaking? Or are we going to sow little and thus reap very little? Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says? Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the image, imagery of farming, right? You sow much seed, what are you going to get when you water it? You're going to reap a big fruitful crop. You sow few seeds, what are you going to reap? A very little, small crop. And I don't think that Paul is just talking about money here, reaping money, if you will. Though God certainly rewards us in this life as well. I think he's talking about more than that. Listen, one day, when you as a believer get to heaven, you and I are going to see in the form of people, in the form of people who are there, other believers, the impact that our gracious, generous, joyful giving has made in the lives of kingdom citizens, beloved. God works and uses means, doesn't he? He uses means. And so we will see in heaven someday that there are people who are there who are saved because God's resources through his people facilitated the preaching and the teaching of the word of God and the gospel. We will see that. People that look more and more like Jesus who, are, who were conformed into the image of Christ there because they were edified in a local church. Their life changed when a Bible was delivered to them. When they learned memory verses in Awana. When they were a part of children's ministries. Where people preached the gospel to them. And served those little ones. And cared for them. And came alongside of parents. We will see that. Corporate worship. Fellowship groups. Men's and women's ministries. Children's ministries. Youth. Awana. The Armenian Reformed Church that meets in our building. 
All of those things, beloved, listen, are for the purpose of impacting lives for the sake of the gospel. That's where the possession or the, or the finances go to invest into people. So one day in heaven, we're going to see this things that we can't quantify, beloved, on this earth. We can't quantify them, but we will see them someday. So we need to see the big picture, beloved. We need to see the big picture. May the Lord help us to, to be kingdom-minded Christians who see the big picture and we, we practice gracious, sacrificial, joyful, planned, and proportionate giving for the advancement of His kingdom here and on the earth. Amen? George Mueller is remembered for his amazing love and compassion. Many of you have read about George Mueller. It is estimated that during his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans and established orphanages and supported other ministries. He established over 100 schools where Christian education could be taught to children. Great love and compassion. He was also a great man of faith. There are stories and journal entries that describe how in secret prayer he would make urgent monetary gifts known to God and not tell a human soul, and God would always provide over and over again millions of dollars of donations, it is estimated, over his, the course of his lifetime, came in to support the kids that he cared for. People gave to his ministry. But what many people don't know is that Chris, um, George Mueller himself was also a great giver. He was a great giver. He supported and funded multiple missionaries and ministries and individuals and gave of his own resources. Over his lifetime, he gave away more than 80% of his income for the Lord's work. He was a gracious, generous, joyful giver. And this too, beloved, showed his great faith, right? Mueller was a kingdom-minded Christian. And he tied his, the use of his money and his possessions to his kingdom-mindedness, if you will, that he needed to invest into the kingdom. He wrote this, If anyone desires to live a life of faith and trust in God, he must not merely say that he trusts in God, but he must really do so. He must be willing to live as the Lord's steward. If anyone does not give out of the blessings which the Lord gives to him, then the Lord who influences the hearts of his children to give would soon cause those channels to be dried up. My good income increased even more when I determined that by God's help, his poor people and his work would be helped by my money. From that time on, the Lord was pleased to entrust me with more. I now ask you, dear reader, a few questions in all love because I do seek your welfare, and I do not wish to put these questions to you without putting them first to my own heart. Do you make it your primary business, your first concern, to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Are the things of God, the honor of His name, the welfare of His church, the conversion of sinners, and the profit of your own soul, your chief aim? End quote. See, for Him... It was all about investing into the kingdom, right? And all of his energies and all of his resources went to the kingdom of God. He saw the big picture, didn't he? May the Lord help us, beloved, to see the big picture. To see the big picture. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a gracious God, a good God, a giving God. 
And the greatest manifestation of your generosity was in sending your son Jesus into the world to die for sinners such as us who by faith have been forgiven of our sins and who have hope. Help us in response to that wonderful grace from you to be people who invest our lives and our possessions and our time into your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.